This podcast is brought to you by Switchboard, providing peer-driven support services for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and gender diverse, intersex, queer and asexual people, their families, allies and communities. Switchboard Victoria also has a dedicated queer, trans, intersex, people of colour program. You can find out more at switchboard.org.au. This podcast is proudly made with the support of the Victorian Government. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Wurundjeri and Bunurong elders past, present and future. We wish to extend this respect to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander queer community, sister girls and brother boys, whose stories have come before us and whose stories will continue to be told after us. Sovereignty was never ceded here. I was lucky enough to have been working in a very progressive environment at the time, so I was in a comfortable bubble feeling very supported. But at the same time, it's hard to avoid remembering the hostility when you see a giant no written in the sky. I feel like the postal vote gave people an excuse to talk about how against it they actually were. Their homophobia was couched by a, we'll probably vote no. And, unfortunately, I heard this too often from conservative adults I was interacting with. I was a teacher at the time and had to regularly engage with kids who were curious about all this stuff going on and, in a way, having that weird moment of trying to decide if their parents would be okay with me talking to them about something like this was another reminder of just how behind we are. When really... That would have been the best moment for us just to sit down and tell children that it is as simple as when their parents love each other. I'm just glad the vote came up as a yes. It was the biggest topic for some time. It's also a way for the government to cover up the horrible things that they have been doing and to make it look like they did a great thing. It was also a time for businesses to cash in on the pink dollar. All they had to do was put up a yes poster and people would come in and spend money. I couldn't vote because I'm not an Australian citizen, and it was the same process as filing a complaint, all through snail mail. Way to forget about those who don't want to get married, who can't get married, and mainly anyone that isn't out wasn't thought of. The businesses that made money didn't hire anyone that identifies as such. They didn't donate the money, and they sure as hell didn't stop any homophobes entering their shops. In my office when it was happening... My boss, who is actually the worst, thought they would get me on side since I was allowed to marry. But if I was late to work because I was called a nigger on the tram, that wasn't good enough excuse. Love wins! It was a fucking terrifying time to be alive. The PM should have done his job and pushed the vote through Parliament and not forced Australian LGBT plus people to suffer through a non-binding, useless plebiscite. Up until the postal survey, my relationship with my long-term partner was private and not a point to question. The postal vote forced the conversation to be public. It resulted in a lot of unexpected exposure to shaming and invalidation of our identities. We had graffiti like, die fags, scribbled across our windows. We saw anti-LGBTIQ graffiti, posters and stickers around our neighbourhood. 
I was forced to walk through crowds of no campaigners in the city. For the first time in my life, I felt genuinely afraid of what would happen if a no vote were to eventuate. This was a very white campaign. There was very little in the way of resources for me to navigate conversations with my ESL-speaking family elders. This made approaching my family about their intention to vote especially difficult. The Australian Marriage Postal Survey asked one question. Should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry? It was a voluntary survey where you could tick yes or no. But was the answer really that simple? One question provoked many conversations. Well, I guess I was scared of the no. Because like, I don't think it was just about the fact of us getting married. I think it was generally like, do you hate or love queer people. <laughs> Do you think that's what the the question on the survey was asking, essentially? Um, maybe not for some people. I know there were some people that were like, oh, we don't, we don't mind gay people, but we just don't want them to get married, you know? That was a lot of what I heard. I'm into rights, and I want Aboriginal people to have their rights as well, you know, that the yes vote sort of really helped my queer identity. But I think it helped my Aboriginal identity as well and it helped my Aboriginal queer identity. I'm Tan Hung Pham, and you're listening to When Love Wins, stories where queer people of colour share with us their lives during the Australian Marriage Postal Survey. In our pilot episode, we listen to stories of who was left out of the party during the same-sex marriage campaigns. If you missed it, then make sure you listen back to our pilot episode, The Party. On this episode, we look at what queer people of colour were saying yes to in the debate around same-sex marriage and equal love, and how the yes and no campaigns shaped the identities of queer people of colour. On the day of the results, thousands of people gathered on the steps of the State Library Victoria. I spoke with Peter Waples Crow about the significance of this place in our history. His art piece, titled The Natives' Rally for Love, responded to the history of same-sex marriage rallies in Australia. I'm Narigo, which is uh, the snow people from the Alpine region. Um, I'm queer, um, and I stay queer now, queer, gay, and I'm an artist, and I'm a community development and health worker as well, and I, I sort of have that balance quite well and I really like that balance um yeah I work for um Thorn Harbour Health but I've worked for a long time in Aboriginal community controlled health organizations and mainstream and the torch program but I'm also a practicing um visual and sometimes performance artist as well I'd love to hear about your the piece that you created the natives rally for love and, yeah, what you think the, the State Library means in terms of, like, a space for coming together. So the Natives Rally for Love was done for an exhibition called We Are Here at the, and it was at the library for Midsummer not, um, a couple of years ago. And um, you had to use something from the library collection, and I used all these 
images of animals, um, native animals. Um, again, colonial images and, yeah, revisioned them into... It was about native love rights and was using an analogy and a metaphor, you know, for native people, not saying that we're animals or anything, but just a joyous sort of celebration of um, the natives, you know, the dingoes were carrying signs and um, the beautiful bird of paradise had a rainbow wingspan and the library was in the background, so I used the library. And I used the space in front of it because when you really think about that, it's almost become like a sacred space of protest and change and um, not just for the marriage equality, but for many, many rallies and causes. And I was, remember there, I was rallying for um, safe schools as well. So it was another huge queer rally and it started there. And I've been to many Aboriginal rallies that have started there and everyone congregates in that space. Refugee rallies, asylum seeker rallies, union rallies. Yeah, it has an energy, you know, this, that's where people gather. That's where people gather in Melbourne to start a change. Yeah, I think it is sort of sacred ground, you know. I think it's really important. And as we've lost our sacred sites, uh, Aboriginal people, I think... You know, a lot of our urban Aboriginal buildings and things that came out of the 60s around here in Fitzroy especially, they have become our sacred places, you know. And mm. I go to the health service and it's got a beautiful floor with bunjil and, you know, creator beings on it. And, and it, people drop in there for a cuppa, you know, not just... It's a one-stop shop to get your health done, but... It's also a community hub and it, it's become like our contemporary sacred sites, you know, that places that we gather and visit. So that's how I'd say see the library. It's become sacred. It's become a place of change and gathering and ceremony. I would love to hear what was your, I guess, strongest memory of the marriage postal survey? I think my strongest memory was the yes day. Like, I was lucky enough to be at the library amongst everyone who gathered there to hear the result. It was a big LGBTIQA plus crowd. And I just think I was so overwhelmed that whole day once the yes happened. And, it, yeah, it'll stick in my mind for a long time. It was, so, it was almost like relief, actually, more than um, celebration. And I remember I shed quite a few tears and I I was thinking th that I had a really emotional day. It felt like it was a great day to be queer, you know, and um, I always think that we'd moved a step closer to um, from the outside to towards the middle with those rights. Could you please elaborate on that feeling of relief rather than celebration? I guess with the... The numbers, you know, it was 60-something percent. But So that leaves 30-something percent who didn't really want you to have those rights as well. So you can think like that. And then I, don't, I know you just thought, imagine if that had been no. We didn't know which way it was going to go. So it was yeah. great to have a yes. 
you know, I was working for Thorn Number Health and we were very pro-yes and, you know, I was wearing my yes t-shirt. I was living in a yes bubble, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, being supported by a workplace that was very much a part of the activism around that, trying to get those rights for us. You know, it was good for us as well, as for Aboriginal queer mob as well, to have that yes vote, I think. Yeah, could you elaborate on that? Like you said well, that you had gone to the look, pub that night. Different things during the campaign, you know. There was a there was a group of elders, I think they were from Central Australia or something like that, but really they were tied to Christianity and the church and they sort of came out saying that it was against God and um, that Aboriginal culture, it was against Aboriginal culture to vote yes and... There was, a, I remember there was a bit of a, me, a media beat up around it. The nose would have loved it, and um, and how did that feel for you? I, it felt horrible, actually. You feel like, yeah, you're copying a personal attack, but you know, I, I sort of always do. You know, I've like, yeah, I think we feel we want. I guess we're looking for our culture to to embrace us as well as queer people and we know some people aren't embraced by their culture some are it's just there's a lot of different stories in the aboriginal and torres strait islander queer world um some people can't live at home some people can often we you know move to cities to come out you know um i don't think it's super unusual for non-indigenous as well but it's just I think what we're lacking is some some of the knowledge about where we fit it into traditional culture as well. And, you know, that's something hopefully will just be uncovered, you know, like even that, that we're 200 and something years into colonisation. I think a lot of um, our history wasn't written by us and a lot of that knowledge has been lost somewhere or erased. You know, we're looking back at books by missionaries and um, Christian missionaries and other explorers who wrote about us. And, yeah, they probably wouldn't have written a lot about queer Aboriginal people or something abhorrent to them probably, you know, so they wouldn't have documented it as well. So, But we are who we are and we're here now and we're queer now and... We're a vibrant community as well, and we're all sort of connected. It's, And I think the Yes campaign really was a positive thing. We got a Yes vote too. and I'm into rights, and I want Aboriginal people to have their rights as well. And, you know, that the Yes vote sort of really helped my queer identity, but I think it helped my Aboriginal identity as well, and it helped my Aboriginal queer identity. But we've still got a long way to go. Aboriginal people are very disadvantaged. And, yeah, colonisation is ongoing in lots of ways. I've been very blessed to have a blessed life in lots of ways. And, yeah, I want the rights for my people as well. And I want what I want to see is the queer world out there rallying with Aboriginal people as well. Yasmin started going to same-sex marriage rallies when she was 15. It was her first introduction to LGBTIQ activism in Melbourne. Looking back, here's how she felt about it. 
I think there was a lot of hurt and I was definitely frustrated and I couldn't really tell what I was frustrated for because I wasn't necessarily, I wanted the right to get married. I was frustrated that I couldn't, you know, just considered the whole act of coming out when I was a teenager just seemed so laborious and ridiculous. Like, why do I have to make it known to everyone? Like, why is this such a big thing? It didn't seem like we were getting anywhere with it, for one. And two, I was like, what are we actually fighting for here? Are we fighting for marriage or are we fighting for equal right? What about getting a job and being queer? What about, you know, adequate housing? You know, I was having these thoughts at 15 years old and I'm like, who are these people that are leading this? And I'm like, seeing that they're endorsed by this and that. I'm like, are we doing this for money? Are we doing this for community? My name's Yasmin Rose. I was born here in so-called Melbourne. Um, I'm 22 years old. I work in community work. I work with young queer people of colour. So I had this job for around two years. I was working in care work. I worked for a family from Southside Caulfield. They were, you know, quite well-to-do and super lovely, but I never really engaged with telling them about my queerness. It was just something that was never brought up. And I remember around the time of the marriage debate, I was quite unwell around that time. I I don't know if it coincided with the debate, but I wasn't coming into work as much. And I remember just like the final straw being like I came into work one day and I was cleaning up the house and I found like a, a bundle of pamphlets that were like, if you allow gay marriage to happen in Australia, this is what will happen to to your children in school. And it was just like they will learn gay sex. They will just, it was just really bizarre, like out there things just like that were just being thrown in there. And I'd been working with this family for two years and yeah, never been brought up or anything. So I had no idea where they stood. And then I saw that and it's kind of just a final straw. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. And what did you say to them when you when you decided to quit? Yeah, I just don't know what I don't know what you say in that situation. Like, yeah. you know, I feel like there's there's a power imbalance. Like, I I rely on I rely on that work for you know money for stability, and I guess I've never really confronted someone close to me about homophobic things before you know if it's family you kind of shrug it off I'm like oh I've just I've never really bothered with fighting yeah and you weren't gonna definitely weren't gonna do it in that situation where it was like a work situation yeah not where it was a work situation not where it kind of like I'm not sure it might have been a part of their belief like they were a religious family and yeah I just I didn't have the tools as well I wasn't sure like where to even begin with that or how to tackle something that seems so huge because the claims that, you know, it stated in the pamphlet were just so out there, like, and just yeah. not actually real. How did you feel after the months after quitting that job? Well, after I quit that job, I was unemployed for, like, nearly a year, mm-hmm. so I was pretty depressed. <laughs> you know, relying on the good old Seno, kind of just rebuilding after that because that care work was so important to me, like, I'd gotten involved in that when I was 18 years old. That was my the longest drum I, I'd held since I'd started work when I was 14, yeah. I think that's also a really big deal, like when you yeah. hold a job for that long and 
yeah, at such an early age and making your own money. There's so yeah. many things that are wrapped up in that, hey, For in sure. terms of our own worth. And I mean, that's like my own experience. But yeah, maybe you could talk a bit to why that job was so important to you and why care work was so important to you at the time. Yeah, it was definitely important for me. It was really nice to have that routine and it tied in really nicely with what I was learning at university in nursing. I learned so much about how to care for someone that's vulnerable that can't speak for themselves necessarily either. You know, I was like their eyes and ears. They, um, yeah, had very high care needs. And also engaging with the family of the person I looked after it was like a full-time job, you know, having to do all the cleaning, yeah. um, cooking, transport, that sort of stuff. And I was only 18. Yeah. I think I didn't realise it's sort of the weight of what I was doing at the time because, yeah, you kind of just do it. I think I'm, I'm naturally a carer and it's something I've been brought up on, you know, helping my friends and family. While I was working in that care job, I realised I was – one, a person of colour and then a queer person of colour. I'd known I was queer for a while and I'd known that I was maybe not white but I didn't identify as a person of colour and it was quite a, a big experience. I, it, My brain really just like exploded. I was like, whoa, that is me. It took me a couple years to actually find a community though. I'm really happy where I am now. Like I've got so many beautiful and loving like people of colour and black people around me, yeah, it's it's really healing and I'm happy I'm here. I'm sad it took this long, but I'm happy I'm here. The Marriage Postal Survey cost $122 million. But what was the real cost of the postal survey on the LGBTIQ community? Same-sex marriage advocates had warned the government of an increase in hate messages towards the LGBTIQ community, and on top of that, there was an increase in suicide and mental health struggles. After the win for same-sex marriage, we also saw an increase in racist backlash against migrants who voted no. But did the LGBTIQ community invest in building strong relationships with migrant communities during the Marriage Postal Survey? During Sam's teenage years, their mum cut their hair often. Their clothes and styles were also heavily influenced by their mum. For many queer and trans people, hairstyle and clothing are crucial to expressing one's sexuality and gender identity. The inability to freely decide one's appearance can feel anything from stifling to extremely dysphoric. When Sam moved to Melbourne on their own, they suddenly had the freedom to discover and express their queerness and gender identity on their own terms. So what happens when you move to a city that is bursting with activism and hungry for change? What happens when you move across cities during a national debate that concerns your queer identity? My name's Sam. I use they, them pronouns. I identify as queer, asexual, non-binary... Yeah, I'm also Korean and I identify as Cutie Park. Can you tell me what is um, your strongest memory of the marriage postal survey? I think my strongest memory is the very last rally when the yes vote was announced at State Library. 
yeah, I was there with a few friends I made at the time through volunteering at a queer organization. And all of us are standing there, like anticipating the vote with everyone else. And then they, they played the live stream. They announced how many people had voted no before they announced the yes. Oh, really? Wow, I don't I remember they that. Had. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah. that's so nerve-wracking. Yeah, and so we heard how many people had voted no, and then they were like, oh, like, but the majority was a yes vote. And then they played, like, the streamers and the celebration, and, and people were crying around us. I remember my friend was crying. Mm. But um, I remember feeling very viscerally disappointed. <laughs> And I felt bad because everyone else around me was having such, it was a, such a big moment for people. But it occurred to me how many people were homophobic in Australia. I think mm. that was the first time they actually counted through a survey how many people didn't want queer people to get married. And so knowing, I think it was like four million and that was they actually had a number. Like, yeah. It wasn't just a percentage. They had a number they of people. They gave, yeah, for sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was feeling disappointed. And also, I didn't feel personally invested in marriage as a concept. For other people, I was feeling happy for them. But for me personally, it was just, ah, okay. So why was it important for you to be there on that day? I was there because I felt as a queer person... I should be there to support other queer people who were very invested in this postal survey and found it really important to them. And I feel like it was an issue that the entire queer community felt like they had to rally around. At least from the Yes campaigning, there was a lot of, we have to get together on this, we have to make the vote yes. And I guess also being aware of that, finding the outcome to be like 61% yes. That was another disappointing factor is that we've done, we'd done rallies after rallies and it was still like a C minus, you know? Oh, a C minus, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is a, that's a really accurate description of it. Yeah. My gosh. And it's true, like there'd been, well, 10 years worth of rallies in my understanding of it, of mm. the campaign, um, but you had only just moved to Melbourne months earlier. Yeah. Um, could you talk us through that? Yeah, so I'd moved to Melbourne in February 2017. Yeah, I'm not too sure about the timeline, but I guess that was around the time they were starting to talk about this stuff. Um, in like media, June, July of that year was around the time I started really getting into queer issues particularly and volunteering at the queer organisation that I was at. And around that time, it was very like this thing is going to be happening, we all need to sort of rally around that. And you felt that at the organisation you were in and through the people you'd met as well, that kind of, I guess, urgency to work on this? Yeah, and also because I was working with a lot of young people at the time as well, there was a lot of, like, we need to protect the queer young people and their mental health because that was foreseen to be very... Something that will definitely happen is that queer young people will be very affected by this. And were they? Uh, I can't speak on all queer young people, but me personally, yeah, I feel like it very much affected me. I didn't really want to be in public a lot or be visibly queer in public. 
and I could hear snippets of conversation that people were talking about this issue and often not queer people would be talking about it and debating queer people's rights <laughs> and I felt very uncomfortable about that. I found that a lot of politicians were speaking at the rally and uh, it didn't really interest me. I felt like this issue had been an issue for so long whichever side of the party was in power at the time, it just hadn't happened. They hadn't made it happen. And now they're going to come up and say that they support this issue. It just felt like we became like a political football for them to kick around and use us to win votes and stuff like that. It felt very superficial. Back when I was in my home city, I was living with my family and I wasn't out to them. So also living with them and being... Uh, a young person, like under 18, I was very controlled in what I could wear or like how I could express my queerness, my like hairstyle. It was a lot of, yeah, my parents influenced a lot of that. And moving away from that city to Melbourne and moving away from my family really helped me, I guess, start from scratch and build up in terms of how I wanted to express my queerness, um, mm. what I wanted to wear, what, how I wanted to style my hair, and what kind of accessories I wanted to have. Coming up on our next episode we'll hear how two queer Asians fought for love among the hatred. We'll hear how one queer Asian Australian became the face of the Yes campaign and how another learnt the meaning of love and family. I'm Tan Hang Pham and you've been listening to When Love Wins, stories where queer people of colour share with us their lives during the Australian Marriage Postal Survey. When Love Wins is a podcast produced by Switchboard and funded by the Victorian State Government. Switchboard Victoria provides peer-driven support services for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and gender diverse, intersex, queer and asexual people, their families, allies and communities. Our host and producer was Tan Hung Pham and our project coordinator was Caroline Riddler. In November 2018, Switchboard put out a survey to hear from queer people of colour about their experience of the Australian Marriage Postal Survey. The results were read aloud on this podcast by Rebecca Robertson and Shamita Siva. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been produced by Switchboard with the support of the Victorian Government. To find out more, visit switchboard.org.au.